in the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message... After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Thanks, Steve. Let's pray. Father God, our prayer is that you might open our hearts and our minds to the scriptures as happened for the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they walked with Jesus and didn't really know who they were walking with for a time and he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. May your spirit lead us to the knowledge of Christ, deepen within us the understanding of the gospel, that we would treasure you above all else. In your name we pray. Amen. Some of you uh, might be a bit like Robin and I and enjoy watching certain programs on telly. Uh, We enjoy watching Arne Doe's Brush with Fame, that series on the ABC... You may have seen it. Arne seats an Aussie celebrity in a big yellow chair in his studio and interviews them uh, while he paints their portrait. And uh, if we just turn to the next one, you'll see Rosie Batty sitting in her yellow chair and uh, being interviewed by Arne. And it's not uncommon for these people to be reduced to tears in some way or other. Now, how he manages to do serious artwork and follow through with an interview asking in-depth questions with people is extraordinary. And his disarming smile and humour virtually ensure that little-known aspects of their lives 
will come out. And his portraits are more impressionist style. Um, he uses broad brushstrokes with lots of colour, best viewed from a distance. But Arne seeks to capture something of the inner character of the person, the spirit of the person. And I think his portrait of former Australian of the Year, Rosie Batty, is amazing. And when we, when we see how he has captured her and we understand the short time frame under which it was done and he was interviewing her as he went, I just find it amazing. But in a vastly superior way, what Arndo's portraits do to Aussie, Aussie history and culture, if you like, the, the four Gospels are to the Bible and even to world literature. Our four Gospels are unique. They're they're like verbal portraits of Jesus. They, They give us an insight into who he is and what he's done, but they're not painted with brush and pen. They're painted with with stories, with encounters, with teachings, and And we gain a composite picture of who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah and Son of God, the Lord and King of the universe, as as encounter after encounter unfolds, as he gives his teaching and instruction. And we gain an insight into who is this man. No one ever spoke like this man. There's more to this man than meets the eye. And you see, as you read through the four Gospels, uh, the disciples grow in their understanding of who is this master, this man they call rabbi, teacher. And they eventually come to see what Peter saw. You are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? So the Gospels introduce us to a a different kind of, of genre of literature. It's not biography, but it includes biography. But it's far more than biography because... they're really Holy Spirit-inspired evangelistic weapons, the four Gospels. They contain history, but are far more than historical records. They're like spiritual silos that store Gospel seed. And as people get into these silos and get the seed into them, something happens. A faith is awakened by the Spirit of God and they come to see through new eyes and they come to see, aha, this, this man is, is the son of the living God. He died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. This is why it's called good news. Wow. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John have given the world enduring literary portraits of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit continues to use to breathe new life into people's hearts through the gift of faith. 
The ancient historian Josephus also tells us a fair bit about Jesus. You can, you can read what he said. But people don't have the same... It doesn't produce the same impact in people's lives as reading the Gospels. Because Josephus is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Gospels are unique in all of world literature. They're in a genre of their own called Gospels, surprisingly. And they, they are, are really the embodiment of the good news. Now, of these four Gospels, Marx is the shortest, the most direct, the, the most urgent and insistent. Unlike an Ando portrait that can be hung on a wall and you can stand back and admire it, Mark presses home the divine character of Jesus' life and ministry along with the urgent saving significance of his death for our lives. So when you're reading through Mark's gospel, you get this overwhelming impression of, I've got to do something with this man. I can't just remain neutral towards him. I can't just admire him from a distance. He, he makes claims that I've got to work through. He, he's done things that I've got to think about and the, the scale on which he's doing this and the intensity and urgency and importance of it are such that I've got to come to a decision about this man, one way or the other. So it was obviously not Mark's basic intention to just set out a rigid chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. Rather, his intention was to give a faithful representation of the essential features of Jesus' life, teaching and actions so that his readers would come to saving faith and further spread the good news. Mark doesn't simply give us the facts about Jesus' life and ministry. He proclaims him as the crucified, resurrected and eternally alive Lord and Messiah in whom we must believe to be saved. That is what Mark is on about. So Mark knew that saving faith was more than being persuaded that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Now, hang there with me on this. Think, just think about this. If the purpose of Mark was to try and give a reasoned account of the fact that Jesus lived, died and rose again and persuade people to come to agree with that and understand that, would that necessarily constitute salvation? Is someone saved by believing that Jesus rose from the dead? No. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus ends with, with these, these words. He, and this is still a parable, so this is the rich man and Lazarus with Abraham, and Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Even the demons believe and tremble, but they're not saved. A mere belief in the resurrection is not enough to save someone. There's something more. And it's that something more that Mark is driving at in his gospel. The essence of saving faith is seeing the supreme beauty 
and majesty of Christ in the meaning of this event of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's embracing him as saviour and lord. It's savouring him as our treasure, as our joy, as our hope, as our life, as our righteousness, as our peace, our, our, our passport to a relationship with the living God. Jesus is all in all. Satan does not see the crucified and risen Christ as supremely beautiful. He does not treasure him at all. He opposes him. But believers, those who come to faith in Christ, those for whom the gospel is a song that sings in their hearts, they treasure Christ. This is the essence of saving faith that Mark aims for. We know from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That is what Mark is presenting to us. The light of of the knowledge of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. A portrait of Christ where we actually encounter the man himself, the God-man, where we meet him and come to a saving relationship with him. Satan's aim is not primarily to keep people from believing Jesus rose from the dead, His aim primarily is to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ because he knows that's the power of God for salvation. That's what he wants to obscure. That's what he wants to get people sidetracked onto other things so that that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Anything but that. Anything but that. So there is a spiritual light that shines through the gospel and it's the light of the glory of Christ. It's the light that shone before God said, let there be light. It's the light that shone before God said, let there be sun, moon and stars in the heavens on the fourth day. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the living one. This is what a person must see if he is to be saved. It is seen with the eyes of our hearts. And when the Holy Spirit lifts the veil from our minds, we see as we've never seen before, then we see the hidden character of the man. Then we come to see that he's not just a man. He's the son of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the portrait of Jesus that Mark is endeavouring to give. Now consider the opening sentence of Mark. He, he just leaps right in. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He just cuts right to the chase. And then in supporting evidence, he, he just says, and Isaiah spoke about this. And he then quotes from Malachi, but also from Isaiah. 
Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. And he just runs them together. But because Isaiah is the major prophet, the most often quoted one, he says, as Isaiah the prophet says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice, one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now that's saying this is significant. He's, he's saying in, in this beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God prepared a way. God wanted people not to miss this option, not to miss this man, not to miss this Son of God. He wanted them to see the saving significance of Christ. He's implying something really significant about Jesus, that he's the world's new beginning. It's, there's a similarity with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark says, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, and he's, he, he knows that's going to strike a chord, a note of, oh, I seem to have heard that somewhere before. And you go back to Genesis and he's saying, this is a fresh start for the world. This is good news. The world that perished through the flood will be saved through the Son of God. When we're baptised into his name, we're baptised into his death and into his resurrection and into permanent acceptance with God. It's good news. It's a fresh start. It's a living hope. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Mark's on about, Mark 10.45. Mark's goal is to show the point of the good news of Jesus Christ. And basically he gives us 16 chapters of concentrated persuasion that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he doesn't waste any time, does he? He dives right into the heart of the ministry of Jesus, first with the role of John the Baptist preparing the way, and then with Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness. No reference to Jesus' pre-existence with the Father like John, like John's Gospel. No genealogy or birth narrative like uh, Matthew and Luke. By verse 15 in Mark 1, Jesus has arrived on the scene, been baptised by John and the Holy Spirit, been tempted by the devil in the wilderness, been ministered to by angels and commenced his public ministry. The starter's gun is fired, Mark's off and running. He's into it. He can't wait. In contrast, Matthew spends the first 17 verses of his gospel recounting Jesus' ancestral records. And he hasn't even got to the actual birth of Jesus. By the end of his first chapter, Mark has recorded how Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom and preached repent and believe the good news in synagogues and countrysides, called his first disciples, driven out evil spirits, healed scores of people, including a man with leprosy, which was unheard of in those days, spent time in prayer and become so popular that he had to live apart in lonely places. In contrast, by the end of, of Matthew 1, Mary is just named Jesus, Jesus. And Luke has spent 80 verses setting the scene to describe Jesus' birth, which is in Luke 2. 
Clearly, Mark's on a mission. He uses words like immediately, straight away and at once to highlight the urgency of repenting and believing this good news. From start to finish, he's on about the gospel, the sacred and imperishable news of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the portrait that he's giving us. Do you you see it? Does this portrait mean anything to you? Do you find this portrait makes you want to sing, makes you want to rise up in praise and adoration of God? Do you find this portrait gripping your heart and saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that my sins have been nailed to the cross, that Jesus died for me, for my sin, for my failure, for my shame, and he rose again that I might have life and have it more abundantly. That he came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I want to be like him. I want to serve. I want to, I want to speak out. I want to make this good news known. Does it grip you? Does it sing in your heart? I I saw it coming out in the interview with Kate. Kate's desire was to to just have the, the good news of Jesus proclaimed. She wanted to be a part of that and her life was being modelled around that as a priority rather than having God just as an accessory to make herself more happy. So it's a very different worldview, very different. John's preparation for Jesus' public ministry involved preaching a message that was not a popular one. It was repent from sin and believe the good news. Look what it says, verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance. He's come in preparation. God, through the prophets, has prophesied that he would come to prepare the way for the Lord. And he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But it's interesting that Jesus did the same. Verses 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What Mark is telling us is that you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, the good news. There's no other way to be saved. There's not room through the straight and narrow gate for you and your sins to pass through. There's there's not room for you and and your, your pet things that you want to make yourself happy apart from God to to squeeze through and and for you to nurture and and mollycoddle them and expect God to, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can't serve two masters. There's the straight and narrow way or there's the broad way that leads to destruction. But only one way that leads to life. And Jesus is that way, that truth and that life. The heart of the good news centres on Jesus and to come to Jesus we have to see ourselves as so falling short, so not measuring up, that we say, 
Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And he says, I love you. I gave myself for you. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for you. Enter into your master's joy. So when we repent and we believe that Christ died on the cross and rose again for us, then we're starting to get a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel that is good news, that continues to save sinners, that continues like a seed to grow, and it's irresistible. Have you ever seen uh, what a seed can do over time? I'm, uh, for a number of years, I was the pastor of Gateway Baptist Church in town, and I, opposite Morty's there, and I've been watching a plant grow on the roof of Gateway. You watch, people are going to go and probably have a look at this now. But right up on the very top, amongst the, the sandstone work, there is a plant, and it has not been removed. Even when, we, when the, the roof was replaced, that plant was not plucked up. Down the track, there's going to be some problems. Down the track, there's going to be some splitting in, in the stonework because that seed is still growing. That plant is getting bigger and you can see it. It's poked its nose over the top and it's in broad daylight now. So uh, watch this space and see what happens. And the gospel does the same. The gospel is like seed that when it enters into our heart, it just it keeps growing and, and gradually it's going to push other things out of the way. It will create a split within you. It's going to make you choose who you are going to serve this day. You can't remain neutral to the gospel. It's, it's just, it just, that's how it works. So Mark's portrait of Jesus aims to awaken his readers to the sinful state of their heart. And as they awaken to their sin, it keeps growing and, and, the, and the faith that God gives us keeps opening our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has not rewarded us according to our sins. He has not punished us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. That when Jesus died on the cross and says, it is finished, he was dying in our place. He was bearing our sin. He, he was giving his life as a ransom for many that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that gospel seed will just keep growing. If you keep walking in obedience, if you keep... Keep yourselves in the love of God. Pray for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep trusting in him, walking with him, looking to him, and that seed will grow despite obstacles, despite great, great adversity. This is all recorded in the Bible so we too might know how to find eternal life through repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus Christ. John's baptism was a picture of being washed clean from sin by accepting Jesus' death, burial and resurrection as our own. We then find that Jesus is being baptised even though he has no sins of his own to confess 
You see, as you follow through, what Mark is saying is at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John. And you could scratch your head and you could say, well, if he had no sin, why is he being baptised? If John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance from sin, how can Jesus submit to John's baptism? That's crazy stuff. It just doesn't measure up. But there's a, if you like, to use C.S. Lewis's uh, phrase, there's a secret wisdom at work here. Jesus is identifying with us. Jesus came in our place to bear our sin. And as the sin bearer, what, what we go through in order to come to faith, he identifies with and, if you like, baptises it with his favour and blessing to show us the way, to confirm this is the way, walk in it. Yes, this is right. This is the way back to God. And he identifies with that, goes through that, and he is installed, if you like, into the office of Messiah. He is publicly recognised. And, and there's a confirmation that comes from heaven. There's a heavenly witness that says, this, you, my son, you're my beloved son. I'm well pleased in you. And, and the voice comes again at Jesus' transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. And, and it comes again at Jesus' death when he breathes his last. The, the Roman soldier can't help but exclaim, surely this man was the son of God. Mark is showing us all of this from Jesus' baptism and the Father's witness in heaven, not just the public testimony of John. And, and Jesus' transfiguration later on and on the cross, it's being, he's being proclaimed and heralded as the son of the living God. There's no other way back to the Father. He is the way. Trust in him. So where Adam sinned and quenched God's spirit, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and was baptised with the spirit. Later on at Pentecost, he, would, he in turn would baptise others with the spirit. So that, so that we could walk in the Spirit. As Galatians says to us, walk in the Spirit and make no provision for the lusts of the flesh. The voice from heaven bore witness to God's acceptance of him as his beloved son made in his image so that we could be assured that God loves and accepts us in Christ. We're accepted in the beloved. Wow. His 40 days of resisting temptation in the wilderness uh, straight after his baptism, he's driven out into the wilderness by God's spirit. And, and he's there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he's with the wild animals and, and angels are ministering to him. Well, it, it's where Adam failed in a garden, Jesus overcomes as the second Adam in the wilderness. Where Israel failed through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Jesus overcomes through 40 days of resisting temptation. The symbolism is there. It's saying, this is the new Israel. This man is the son of God. He's the second Adam. He's your hope. He's your righteousness. Look to him. So he's with the wild animals unharmed. And it's showing that the age of the Messiah has come, where the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So to wrap it up, the indispensable key 
to receive in Christ is to confess and turn from sin and trust in, rely upon, believe in the good news of Jesus Christ by savouring, coming to savour, to, to value and treasure and delight in his majesty and glory. Do you see it? Can you see him? The resurrection and the life. That even though we die, yet shall we live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. That's a glorious vista. That's an amazingly good thing to grasp. If Mark was here today, he would say to us, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you truly believe this? Are you dying to sin and living for Christ? Are you only pretending to shoulder your cross and follow Jesus? Has, has that gospel seed really taken root deep in your heart? Do you really see and treasure the glory of Christ? Do you? The gospel is Jesus Christ. That's what Mark tells us. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Everything's about Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, he preaches that good news about his saving work. Everything centres on him, goes to him, flows from him and is for him. He is the majestic Lord of glory. I just say to you, don't let this moment pass by remaining neutral towards Jesus. Don't let this moment pass by. If you have never come to that place of truly surrendering the very core of your being to Christ, of believing that he has lived and died and risen again for you, then come to that place now because that is the point of life. That's where it all begins. Don't let the moment pass you by. Sort things out between you and the Lord. What must you repent of? Repent and believe the good news. That's what we've got to do. So what sorts of things do you need to repent of? A guilty conscience? About what? A broken relationship? A wrong relationship? One you know doesn't have God's approval? A wrong attitude? A hidden vice that you're nurturing and you know you need to be done with it? A breach of trust. Lukewarm faith. Lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. A compromised faith. Where you're trying to step both sides of the fence. And you're wondering why you're getting chafed. And it's not working out. Financial compromise. Is that what it is? Is it a failure to act? You know you should have. Is it a failure to pray? Is it unforgiveness? That you're not forgiving as you've been forgiven? Or is it unbelief? We sang Psalm 95. We know from Hebrews. Hebrews explains Psalm 95 and says, that generation could not enter in. Only two out of that generation of Israel wandering in the wilderness could enter and they failed to enter because of unbelief because of unbelief 
repent and believe the good news this day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would stir each of our hearts, Lord. None of us are beyond any of these uh, sins, any of these ways of living. It's so easy for us to look at others and to see where they're compromised. It's so hard to behold the log in our own eye. It's so easy to think that a particular message applies to others. If I wish they were here, they need to hear this and miss the still small voice where you're whispering to us and saying, come, come to me, listen up. I have plans for you, for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But first, there's some matters to deal with. Help us, Lord, to come to that place of deep repentance and deep faith. To know that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again, giving life, eternal life, rich and full and free but not cheap. Free to us but paid with an awful price, the blood of your son. So Father, open our eyes to see how good this is. When we come to the end of ourselves, may we come to the point of it all and see Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, who died and rose again and is the ever-living one. In your name we pray. Amen.